I'm Daisy. And I'm Terry. And this is the Monday Monday Mindset Mindset Podcast. Podcast, where we talk about something of interest to us and hopefully to you. So let's get started with episode number 22. This week, it's Terry's turn to share something that she's found interesting. What have you got for us this week, Terry? So, Daisy, once again, I have returned to one of my favorite podcasts and also to one of my favorite people that I follow. Mm, I'm like, "Mm, which one's it going to (laughs) be? I don't know that I've talked about her much here, but um, I talk about her quite a bit in other arenas. So this is from an episode of Lewis Howe's School of Greatness, his podcast, and it's with a woman named Marissa Peer. Ah, yeah. And she is a psychotherapist from the UK mm. that I've been following for several years on various platforms. And this episode is called The Six Secrets to Completely Heal Your Body and Mind. Now, I noticed after I got done listening, I don't know that I know what she identified as the six secrets. So I'm just going to cover a lot of information that was in it. Um, Maybe listeners can pull out their six secrets. But Marissa Peer has been a psychotherapist for many, many years. And interestingly, at one point, she wanted to work with children. And she came to the US, and I don't remember the whole story, but she came to the US and started working with Jane Fonda in teaching aerobics back in the 80s. And so she got very involved in working with women who did not feel positively enough about themselves and who were always striving to be thinner, leaner, more toned, whatever it was, and always trying to be something more or different than what they were. So this really kind of guided her work. She's a hypnotherapist, and she does a particular type of hypnotherapy called rapid transformational therapy. And I've often considered maybe joining one of her training sessions and learning how to do this because it does sound pretty powerful. One of the things she talks about with kind of standard psychotherapy is that it's the one field of helping people that encourages you to just keep talking about the problem. Hmm. She said, I want you to think about if you went to a dentist because you were having terrible tooth pain, your dentist would not say, oh, sure, that's great. Why don't you come back next week and we'll talk about the pain again? And why don't you come back next week and we'll talk about the pain again? So her type of therapy is really intended to kind of dig in quickly and get the problem out. I have been following her, like I said, for years. And so a lot of what she said in this episode highlights things that she says in all of the talks that I listen to with her. So I'm going to go over some of these and um, hopefully people can walk away with some things to start working on right away to help them improve how they feel. First, she talks about the importance of thoughts. And you and I have covered this in a number of episodes. And every time we talk about it, I think about her comments on it. So I'm going to go into a little more detail. She talks about the idea that thoughts dictate our feelings, our feelings then dictate our actions, and then our actions dictate events. And so the key factor to always be working on are those original thoughts. Because if we change our thoughts, we influence different feelings to develop. And those feelings will lead to different actions, and those actions will bring us different events. So very much focused on the power of our thoughts. 
she highlights in all of her talks and in this episode, the fact that the thoughts we have are our interpretations of things. Yeah, that they're subjective, basically. Yes. Mm. Most of us often rely on or talk about events affecting us. And she talks about in reality, it's not the event that affects us. It is our interpretation or our meaning making from an event that affects us. Mm. So again, our thoughts. So one thing she encourages is to work on changing the interpretation when something challenging happens to really ask, what does this mean? And look at our interpretation. She uses an example of Nelson Mandela who was imprisoned for 27 years. Mm. And it would be easy to think, I don't know how he survived that. That must have been terrible. And in an interview, he once said this about how he survived that. He said, everyone in my country is in prison, and I'm in this one. So he was able to reframe the meaning of his imprisonment to help guide him and make it tolerable. And he became even better in what he was experiencing in leading people. She gives another example. And as you listen to this example, if you're like me, it was hard not to try to figure out what famous person she was talking about. Hmm. Because Marissa Peer works with the royal family. I was going to say, she works, yeah, with works with famous people. <laughs> movie stars. Yes, all kinds of famous people. So, she was using an example that she worked with a rich woman who had gone to prison for tax evasion. <laughs> and not that I don't think there were probably more than one of these, but she talked about the idea that this woman actually found it as a positive experience. And it might be hard to imagine, how could being in prison be a positive experience? And what she realized in talking with her is that this woman had begun to live a fairly limited life. She had everything she wanted. She had a gorgeous home. She had people doing everything for her. So she had very little meaning left and very little positive social interaction. So while she was in prison, she learned to be a yoga instructor. She started teaching other classes. And even after she left, after her term was over, she went back and visited because of the connection she had made there. So again, taking an experience, both of these two examples, taking an experience of being in prison and seeing it differently, making different meaning of it. And so Marissa talked a lot in this episode about the words that we use. Basically, our mind only knows what to do based on the words that we give it. And the words also create pictures. And those are the two things that our brain responds to the words that we give it, and the pictures that we show it, that is what creates our reality. So in using an example like during COVID, when people say, this is killing me being locked up at home, this is driving me crazy, I'm pulling my hair out, hmm. I wish someone would take my kids and kidnap them, that we're making the situation intolerable for ourselves. And we're telling our brain that it's intolerable. And she goes through a lot of examples. If you say constantly, my boss is killing me, going to work is the worst thing I ever have to do. Our brain going back to its real function of keeping us alive is it then says, oh, 
well, if work is killing you, I'll make sure you don't go to work. And so it makes us sick. It gives us a reason to not do that thing that is killing us. And so using words, again, it's killing me. This is the worst thing possible. This is devastating. When that relationship ended, he tore my heart out and broke it in a thousand pieces. That is what we're telling our brain. If I just told myself that, why would my brain let me enter into a new relationship? It won't because I've learned that that is threatening to my survival. And so we have to be very careful about the words that we choose. So for example, even right now, while many businesses are not open or going places is much more limited than normal, she used the example of maybe saying something like, I'm safe at home versus I'm on lockdown. She even uses the word quarantine and she says, you know, technically we are not quarantined. We can move about somewhat and we can see other people. That's not truly the definition of quarantine, but quarantine makes it sound deadly to us and sets that into our brain. And people who are saying, you know, this is about the government taking away my freedom. Again, very different feeling if you say decisions that are being made are to help me be safe at home versus they're taking away my freedom. So even just changing the words can definitely change how we respond to it. In my work with clients, it mostly is work related to eating and fasting. And she kept using this example that really stood out to me. When we get hunger signals, many of us say, I'm starving. Mm. I could eat a horse. Mm. She said, you know, our brain is wired to be scared of hunger because long, long time ago, that is what used to kill the most people was mm. lack of food. Deadly, yeah. And so our brain pays attention to this signal. And if we keep saying, I'm starving, I'm not going to make it if I don't eat, our brain starts to panic. That's a threat to survival. And so it will say, there's a vending machine downstairs. Why don't you get two bags of those chips and a candy bar? And you might need this too. It will lead us to very problematic choices. It's amazing how those images literally pop into your brain, isn't it? Absolutely. That's what, you know, if... And a lot of people are the same way, I'm, I'm sure. If you get really stressed out or maybe overtired or something, it, it, I mean, it triggers similar things in your brain, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I literally get images of junky, crappy food pop up in my brain. Absolutely. <laughs> this is what you need. This is what you need. And partly because they're easily accessible mm. and we've been, they've been advertised to us. But if instead we're saying, my body has the fuel it needs but I feel like I could eat, that sends a very different message. That does not send a panic message to your brain mm. that is going to kick into overdrive and get you food immediately and usually the worst options. I was going to ask you something about the examples you gave, particularly about work, because I'm sure some people will have been listening to that and be thinking maybe something along the lines of, well, okay, so you know, maybe it's not a good idea to say, oh, my boss is killing me or using those kind of dramatic words. But what if my work is kind of pretty awful? What if 
I know deep down, and maybe this is why I'm using these kind of words, that it's it's really stressing me out. And I know it is negatively impacting my health. I mean, personally, I'm thinking of somebody I used to work for, and I didn't use the exact language, but I used to complain bitterly about her. And she was someone who was very, very difficult to work with. And it made that job a misery, really, which kind of was a shame because it was a nice garden and I made it look amazing. I made some really nice changes to it. I was actually quite proud of it. But working for her was impossible. And I carried on doing it for way longer than I should have done because it was a good amount of money weekly. And so I was in that position, which I'm sure many, many people are, that they have to make a decision between doing a job that basically most of the time makes them miserable and giving up that money. And in the end, that balance <laughs> swung so much one way that I decided, uh, you know, I'd, I don't care anymore. I'm prepared to lose that money because I can't work for anymore it's it's damaging my mental health and actually it was a very it was a very good choice because it happened I made that decision not long before my stepfather got ill and I and I was going backwards and forwards to the UK a lot more often and she would have complained bitterly about me being away from work frequently and I probably would have completely lost my rag at that point and the only reason I didn't actually was because a friend of mine also worked for her and it was her who got me the job. So I left that job a lot more politely than I probably would have done otherwise. But had I not made that decision then, it probably would have escalated into something mm -hmm. a lot more acrimonious later. So what about people who are in a position where, okay, it's not killing them, but it's damaging them mm -hmm. and they're using language actually probably reasonably appropriately even if in an exaggerated fashion i think to me the important thing there would be to recognize highlighting that it's killing me that my boss is horrible those kind of things is going to heighten it it's going to make me pay more attention to it and it's going to make my brain try to get away from that versus allowing yourself to be truthful this is not a good environment for me I'm not getting to be healthy and feel good while I'm here because of the toxicity that exists. But what I would be telling myself is I choose to stay here until I find a better replacement or until I know how to leave in a way that's going to serve me well. Then my brain does not have to say, oh, I'll get you out of it. Don't worry, Terry. Mm. Like I'm going to say, I know this isn't a good environment for me. And I'm working on a healthy solution that sets me up well. My body getting me sick is not setting me up well, but it is getting me out of that work environment. So to me, it's, I don't think you have to lie to yourself in this example and say, you know, nope, this job is great and I should just be grateful I have it. But to say, yes, this is a toxic environment for me and I am taking steps to be ready to leave when it works best. Yes, that makes sense. Because I was kind of having that disconnect thinking, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be able 
to lie to myself in this mm-hmm. situation. My brain's going to know better. Mm-hmm. So yes, that sounds like a good way around it. And I think being realistic about it also can help motivate you to make the necessary steps that you need to make to get out of there and protect yourself more quickly. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Taking some power back and just complaining, taking some steps of action. Yeah. 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 And so if you think about it too, our brain, you know, as you and I have talked about before, and everyone talks about it mechanistically at either fight, freeze, or flee. What we really want is to give it another option, which is to flow, mm. to be in a good place. So she gives an example of if you're going in for an MRI test, if you say, Lying in there is like lying in a coffin. I can't do that. I feel trapped in there. Of course, your body is going to respond to that. Your brain is going to respond. She actually did an MRI and talked to herself and tried different things. And for a while, she was lying there and she was saying, oh, I'm so comfortable here in this nice bed. I'm just lying here relaxing. And then she started thinking, I'm in my coffin. I can't get out. (laughs) And they actually had to stop the test. And they said, Marissa, what's going on? You're moving nonstop. So just by changing what she was saying to herself, her body was responding. Again, the words and the images are so important. Again, remember, your mind's job is to keep you alive. Mm. It had to keep us alive so that we could procreate. And now, you know, that's maybe only the first 30 years of our lives. And then we've got like another 70 that it's working to keep us alive. So it's going to be responding to the messages we give it. She then talks about the difference between changing thoughts is technically pretty easy. We just changed the thought, you know, I can think A or I can think B. The challenge is once the thought already moves us to a place of feeling, we have to actually talk ourselves out of feelings. And so they're more problematic. So better to focus on changing the thoughts. But then she spends a good bit of time talking about feelings and the importance of recognizing that we are not victims to our feelings. And she highlights the need to express our feelings, to be aware of them. But we have learned that many feelings are unacceptable or unsafe. And so we learn to kind of push them down. She used this saying that for a moment, I felt like a a 12-year-old adolescent boy when I giggled when I heard it. But she said, feelings are like gas, either in or out. (laughs) They cause pain when they're kept in. And so the idea that we need to be able to acknowledge our feelings. And she also said, feel the feeling until it no longer requires being felt. That we're feeling it to gather information, to to get something that we need from it. And once we get that, it no longer needs to be felt. But when we keep pushing it down, it keeps surfacing. And then she had this great quote that she read from a doctor that said, The feeling that cannot find its expression in tears may cause other organs to weep. I've heard that said almost the exact quote as Mm -hmm. for psoriasis, Mm -hmm. but phrased slightly different. Something like psoriasis is your body crying, your emotions crying, your body's tears, something I can't remember, but along those lines, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Think about when we talk about even like, oh, I have an angry rash. Mm. <laughs> Your rashes doesn't have feelings. <laughs> but yes, 
Most likely it is your body expressing a feeling that it's been unable, you've been unable to Mm. experience or express. And so your body is manifesting it, expressing it somewhere. It's funny how timely this is alongside a post that's running in my Facebook group at the moment Mm -hmm. that I posted really for, for people who suffer from fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome really that's that's talking along those same lines and some of the I shared a post that my friend Kelly wrote about how she overcame it basically took a lot of hard work but that basically it was the same thing it was her body expressing you know long repressed emotions that were trying to find a way out Absolutely. And they, they expressed in, in excruciating pain. And I think some people, often if you suggest something like that, the initial response is one of defensiveness because what they think you're saying is you've brought this on yourself. Mm-hmm. It's your fault you're feeling this way. Snap out of it. You can think your way out of it. And of course, it's not as easy as that. But I think if mm-hmm. you can actually grab hold of And come to terms with the fact that actually, yes, you do have the power to change that. It's probably going to be very difficult to access it and it's going to be difficult to action it. But I think once you can actually grasp hold of that and believe that, that's the start of recovery from some of these things. Absolutely. I was having some type of kind of like an arthritic flare for a few months at the beginning of this year. And I wrote to one medical person who her advice back to me was I would really encourage you to do some reflecting on what grief or pain or feeling is it expressing for you? Are you not acknowledging, but it's coming out this way through your body? Mm. And so I think this is a, a really important factor as well to think about in response to this episode is, am I having my feelings? Am I allowing them? I know I keep emphasizing the need to work on thoughts first, but those are always our primary, but we still have feelings. It's not like we're never going to have feelings and that we're going to have difficult feelings. So the importance is to acknowledge our feelings, let ourselves have them, and even recognizing we have a primary drive to avoid rejection. So when we think about relationships, fear of social engagement and things, we are hardwired to avoid rejection. It was safety. If my people reject me, if my tribe or my, you know, surrounding community reject me, I could die. We have a drive to seek connection. That's seen as safety. And so when we say things like, oh, rejection would just kill me. If I dated someone and they rejected me, it would just kill me. Or if I flirted with someone and they rejected me, that would kill me. To be able to say no, it feels uncomfortable. It would feel awkward. But to again, take the power out of it will not kill us. I think could be a helpful way to help us take those kinds of risks that we may need to do. One of the things I really liked about this episode, as I said, I've listened to a lot of episodes with her and a lot of her talks. One of the things I liked about this is she talked about her own experiences, some of her own struggles. So for example, one of the things she's done in her life is to 
stop eating sugar and eat healthy food. And she talks about how that still can be difficult at times. So she's not just Pollyanna saying, as long as you change how you think, everything's going to become easy. And then sometime within the past couple of years, I don't remember when this episode was recorded, she had also had an experience with cancer. And so for someone who is so geared toward thinking positively and experiencing her life positively, I think she questioned kind of what you were questioning. Did I cause this? Because I've been doing everything right. How could I have caused this? And again, she had to look at it of what am I learning from this? I think it sounds like she maybe had some type of, she had to have a hysterectomy, I believe. And so what she said is that was an unnecessary body part for me at this stage in my life. She's older. She has a grown daughter. So this was useful for her to understand others, to understand her clients more. But if she had started to blame herself and said, you know, life sucks because I got this cancer and things that she would have gotten more sick. And you and I've talked about that in a number of episodes. I liked that this episode also had a little bit of her personal challenges of working with some of these concepts. Because anytime I listen to her, she just sounds like, oh, she has such a great mindset. She can make everything sound doable and she can make everything sound fine. But to get to hear that human response of, no, she struggles as well, really helped me to put it into context. It's interesting. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever really listened to her, actually. I've seen mm. her pop up in some Facebook ads and things like that, but I haven't I haven't really listened to her, so I'd be interested to hearing some of the things she has to say. It was interesting that you used that example of her having cancer because it just brought to mind how many stories I've read over the years, actually, of how it has been a positive, life-changing experience for a number of people having cancer. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, that sounds crazy, but... It has been an experience that has helped reshape and reframe mm -hmm. their lives and their thoughts. And, and you can understand that if you, if you survive something like that, that it would be life-changing mm -hmm. and completely change your perspective and maybe the direction of the way your life was going. Absolutely. The other thing that I wanted to share about this episode and Marissa Peer, anything that you listen to with her you will hear this theme because it is a core of her work and, and how she works with everyone, whether it's individual clients or speaking engagements with thousands of audience members. And that is, she believes all of our struggle, our human kind of struggle comes down to one of three things. And the one that she says almost all of us have as a core issue is that phrase, and that sense of, I am not enough. And I was thinking about this last week when you were sharing about The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. This idea that so many of us struggle with this not feeling we're enough. And we will get confirmation for anything we believe. If we believe we are not enough, we will find plenty of confirmation that supports that. That's one of the jobs that our brain does. It gets confirmation for things. The other two core issues that she says are very common, I am different and therefore can't fit in. Hmm. And then the third being, 
whatever it is that I am wanting or desiring is not available to me. So for example, if someone has a lot of weight they want to lose and they've struggled with it for 30 years, they may see that as their biggest goal, but see that they have a limit, that that's not possible for them. But again, she highlights the most important one that seems to underlie, even for famous people, is that message of not being enough. And one of the strategies she always does is talks about taking, you know, like a whiteboard marker or something and writing on the mirror in your bathroom, I am enough. I was going to ask you if, if that was, because you've mentioned somebody who did that before. Yes. Uh, so I was wondering if it was her. Yes. Hmm. Because that way you see it every day, mm. multiple times a day. And again, if words are important, put the right words in front of you. Mm. Mm -hmm. And notice it doesn't say, I am perfect. No. It says, I am enough. And again, this reminds me a lot of some of what you talked about last week about the idea that we are all we need to be. We just need to allow ourselves and be in an environment where we can fully evolve and be. But if we work with a background message that we're not enough, we're always working uphill, we're always battling at becoming something more. We're striving to become enough and you know, keeps us seeking things that don't come easily. So the idea of I am enough. So again, great episode. I encourage anyone to listen to any of Marissa Peer's work. She does some hypnosis sessions you can listen to. I fall asleep within the first few seconds, so <laughs> I don't often hear most of them, but she does great work on lots of different topics. She works with health issues. She works with people with infertility issues, all kinds of things. It's fascinating to listen to her explain in her mind how easy it is to overcome these things once you kind of know the root cause of them. I like that. And I'm very tempted to go and get a felt tip pen and write on my mirror now. <laughs> yes. Do <laughs> I it. I might just do, do that. It. I need to just make sure it's not a permanent marker. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for me, the big takeaway here is basically going right back to where you started. And that is the importance of the words and the pictures you feed to your brain. Because it's something that I have worked on a bit. It's something that I've mentioned in previous episodes about reframing things like depression, for example, rather than labeling myself as a depressive, making mm -hmm. it part of my identity. I've removed myself from it. But I'm really going to try and be a lot more aware of the words I use, particularly about myself, because I know you you ram home that the whole negative self-talk all the time. So I, it is sort of bubbling up into my consciousness, but I, I'm going to make sure that I'm very aware mm -hmm. next time I use any of these kinds of words and remind myself just how much power they have. Great. I think that's the biggest reminder for me from this as well, Daisy, the words I use. When I describe something as being really hard, I'm making it harder for myself. Mm. And so the more I can soften that a little bit, I think is really important. And I'm going to continue working on my word choices and how I express feelings and let 
the thoughts and feelings work well together rather than having negative thoughts inform my feelings. Yes, because it's quite often easy actually to replace that as soon as you use that phrase there really hard. And I know we've had conversations about people who use these kind of phrases with fasting. Mm -hmm. You know, that's obviously something that you're going to hear a lot because that's a big part of what you do. And immediately to my mind, a really quick and easy replacement for that is saying, this is really challenging. Mm -hmm. But challenging is a challenge. Challenging challenges you to take action. It's less negative and it's more inspiring a forward movement. Mm -hmm. But it kind of means in some ways it, it says almost the same thing. It yeah. just slightly pivots what you're saying. And she uses that example of nervousness before a big talk. If you say, my body's ready to go, it's energized. Mm. That rapid heart rate and shallow breathing, that's energized versus I'm so nervous I could faint. Totally different experience of the same sensation. That's right. Absolutely. All right, Daisy, I think that's a wrap for us. Thank you so much for a great connection today. And I hope everyone has a great week. Me too. Have a great week, everybody. Mm -hmm.